welcome to the Smokies and Wine podcast with JB and Jamie with the best guests, wine and chat. You know it makes sense. Sponsored by Clackenview Wealth Management, working with you today to plan for your tomorrow. Delighted to welcome Michaela to the show. Michaela Tab McInnes, what would you prefer to be known as actually? Might as well just start that off. Michaela's fine. It doesn't matter. I go by both. Well, if I'm refing, I'm Tab. And when I'm working on blackboard tables, I'm McInnes. And when I'm mum, I'm McInnes. So, yeah, makes no odds. We'll just call you Queen of Refs. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome anyway. And thanks. I know it's taken a little bit of time to get this sorted out due to one thing and another. But thank you for joining us um, because I think you're off on holiday this week. So it'll be good to get this out the road and you can finally relax for a bit. I don't mind. I have gin and tonic, so effectively I'm off. Do you know what I mean? Perfect. It's not like it's work. Are you actually getting away on holiday or are you just off because you're off? No, we're going to Cornwall. All my family's from Cornwall. Mum and dad were both born there, so we've spent all our childhood holidays there. So actually to go back as adults with my sister and her family and my, my youngest son, is it'll, it'll be lovely because... I put it this way, do you know what? If it's pissing down with rain in Cornwall, it'll still be 10 degrees hotter than it Absolutely. will be. Absolutely. So we don't care. We Guaranteed. Don't care. It was good you mentioned uh, mum and dad being born in England because I was going to ask you what your roots were because you played for Scotland, but you were born in England. Yeah, I, they're both Cornish. I came up here when I was three and a half, so the only home that I remember is Scotland. Uh, and because... Um, I'm married to a Scotsman as well. In the world of pool, it's not like it's an Olympic sport that I don't know if they've got all these die-hard black and white rules about who you can play for and whatnot. So, yeah, obviously it made sense for me to play for Scotland, seeing I'd kind of grown up here. Where did you grow up then, up here? Because I know you're Dunfermline area now, but were, were you always Dunfermline area or were you somewhere else before that? Three and a half. Um, I was born in Bath, so I was there till I was three and a half, and then I've lived up in Dunfermline ever since. Right, okay. So it is, it's all I remember. You know, I, I don't have any memories of, um, of Bath. I'm too young. Or, yeah, so no, it is all I remember. You've lost that Pfeiffer accent, so well done on that. I never really got it. I think because I started off obviously with an English accent, I think it sounds a bit more like kind of Edinburgh, like posh Scottish. Yeah, and I have no problem with that. That works yeah. for me. I mean, my husband's from Glasgow, and half the time I'm like, what? Because <laughs> you can't understand a word he says. So I've got no problem in not sounding like he does, let me tell you. I, please don't take any offence, Glaswegian people. You know what? It's like. <laughs> and how did you get into Q Sports then to get onto the whole snooker pool thing? Where did that all start? It, it was a, a bit of a strange one because, um, you know, when you used to go on holiday and uh, I don't know if your mum and dad went to a holiday camp, there was the kind of entertainment bit. So there was always a pool table in there and, and there was a couple of times he picked up a queue and, and, you know, I wasn't I wasn't any good, but that's where it started in the very early days. And then um, I started going out with a, uh, a local boy and his local pub in Dunfermline had two pool tables and everybody played pool in it. It was, it was a big pool playing area. So if you didn't actually get up and have a go, you were pretty much sitting on your own because everybody else was having a go. So kind of got into it that way. And because there weren't many females that played, it was very easy to get into the, the Scotland team because if you had any kind of level of uh, ability at that stage you could you were 
you were pretty good, you know, or, or not pretty good, but they needed, in those days, they played with an 11-person team, three sets of 11. So you needed a minimum of 13 or 14 people in the team. That's that's a large number of ladies for a sport then, because, I mean, I'm talking like 30 years ago, that wasn't kind of big, especially, you know, for the female circuit, it wasn't big. Yeah. So, yeah, um, and because I was so bad when I started, I could never have won by trying to outpour everybody. So I learned the game tactically. And that's what got me in the team because I could, I would hang on to a game until it was my turn to go. Because in those days, two shots carried. Oh, so yes. I could play safeties <laughs> and play percentage shots, get two shots, try the finish, arse it up potentially, play, you know, double back, play safety again. And kind of, you know, it's almost like I wasn't trying to win, I was trying not to lose. So kind of fought for it that way. Yeah. Um, so, and that's kind of how I, I got into the team, to be honest. That's definitely the old-fashioned pool, isn't it? Block a yeah. po- block a pocket and all that. Gee. I'm called hanger bag tab, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it, it served you well, though, because I mean, you were what UK champ, European UK, champ, UK and European, yeah, a yeah. uh, European, I think '98, and I think yeah. it was '99 um, UK. And then you won um, the worlds with Scotland. You, you would have been Scotland captain at the time, were you? Yeah, absolutely. We won uh, a few. I can't remember how many, but we won a few world championships and um, Europeans and the Nations Cup. In in the years when I was playing, and for a few after that, we were the strongest ladies team, um, or one of the strongest ladies teams that were out there. England was obviously very strong as well. But what they did a few years later was they cut the numbers required for the ladies team down to five so that other countries could compete because we, us in England had the majority and some of the other countries were struggling to get numbers. So to make it more fair and competitive, especially trying to get newer European countries in because English pools not so you know, well known over there, they needed to reduce the numbers. Well, then, of course, everybody else come into being competitive as well. Yeah. Because you only needed to have five kind of decent yeah. players to be yeah. able to, to get a team. So, so it's a bit more level now. It's not quite, we haven't dominated um, since then so much. A tailblazer. Yeah, yeah. like to think so. <laughs> and your sister played in the same, she played for Scotland as well, didn't you? Did, yeah. yeah. Who was better, you or her? Well, I had more better results, if you say. But to be fair, I, I gave more time to it. Um, and I, I, I had this tactical game that was, you, you know, you always get a second chance if you if you can outthink your opponent. So, um, but then you see, I it's like a puzzle to me. I could stay there quite happily and kind of try and work it out and whatnot. I wasn't I wasn't looking for the finish. That's just where my my strength was. It was a strange way to learn to play, but it, it did me well. Did me yeah. good. Yeah, back in those days, it was like chess, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, especially with two shots carry, because you couldn't afford to give anybody two shots. It, it made it so much easier yeah. to obviously to, you know clear up, carry your shot all the way through the black if you could, yeah. uh, and then have two on the black. And you didn't have to hit a cushion either with every shot in those days, so. You could run up behind a ball, whereas it, it changed, you know, not long. Um, I'm not, I don't even know when it was it changed, but a good few years ago and, um, we, you know, two shots didn't carry and you had to hit a cushion after you'd made contact with the ball. So trying to snooker was a much, much harder um, thing to do then. Yeah. Better, I suppose a better game, much easier, much more 
um, pleasing to watch. It's a, a fan friendly version of yeah. it, isn't it? That's, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's, yeah. It didn't, didn't suit my view at all. <laughs> <laughs> what was your bottle like? You know, everybody talks about players' bottle. What, what was yours like? I wasn't too bad um, in those, you know, once, not in the very early days, because in the very early days, it's like um, when you go to experience something for the first time, you're, you're always under so much more pressure because you don't know what to expect. But once I sort of gained the experience of that stage and um, whatnot, and I, um, I wouldn't say I'd like to be put out to be the last player to win, but I was always put out towards the back as one of the stronger players. So because we, in those days, we only ever played on two or three tables, you, you didn't feel as if you were out there on your own until the other two games had finished and it was the one game you were waiting on. And I was, I was all right. I kind of held my own. Well, the black you ported to win the European was pretty cool. You rolled that, uh, in, no, you rolled that in no problem. You know, um, it was so funny. Uh, I'll tell you a story about that, actually. Um, so that was being televised, that event. And the, um, the whole event, obviously, I played my game, which was tactical. And um, we got to the final, and because I'm I'm known as a slow tactical player, you know, obviously it's the same same with snooker. Everybody knows who the slow tactical players were, and I I was known as that. So the organizer of the event, who's one of my husband's good friends, Alan Marshall, who's since passed away, bless him, he went up to Ross and went, "Can you tell Michaela that we're only going to put the ladies on for an hour, and then we're going to move the match onto another table and bring another match onto the TV table?" And Ross was like. <laughs> No, no, you can do that yourself. Because <laughs> he knew, he knew how that was going to be. Um, and Alan, and I went. I, I, I wouldn't even begin to tell you what I said, but it was like if you I think, think we can I've guess fought, there. Yeah, if you think <laughs> I fought all the way through this tournament to to be put on a table for an hour and then taken off and made to play on another, you can forget it. Like we either finish, start and finish, or you move us. Uh, and they left us play, and it was three hours. <laughs> three hours. But I, I think it was a best of seven. It was first of four. But see the, the final frame. I didn't do a clearance from the break, but I did a seven ball clearance, an eight ball clearance. When I actually had got all my balls set up, I did an eight ball clearance to win the final frame. Well, I'll be honest, I actually flicked through it on YouTube. I didn't watch the whole thing. <laughs> I, I would do. You, you might know the answer to this, right? When, when we played, it was a clearance or an eight baller. Now they call these the dishes and the reverse dishes and all that. When did all that change and, and why? It's it's kind of it's an American term. Everything's kind of gone a little bit American-y, you know. Yeah. Uh, and because it was, it was, you know, a, a, well, it's a breaking dish and they've just kind yeah. of, oh. or, or, you know, been eight-balled. They've, they've shortened it down. The terminology's come in and they've, they've shortened it down. And, yeah, you hear them, and know, oh, he dished from the break and then he reverse dished and I'm like, well, so he broke and dished, but yeah, it is. It's it's bizarre terminology to me because I'm not used to it. The other one I hear is when you're on the hill and hill, hill and all this garbage. That's, that's uh, American as well. I, I yeah, it's it's not not the terminology that I'm used to at all. Uh, and it's quite funny because um, with the Moscone Cup, the the American nine ball event that um, is on every year, I've worked over in America and and then generally use American refs and. Um, because obviously it's, it's America versus Europe. Um, and I I was kind of taught, or my way of doing it, is to announce the at the start and go, so say, um, second frame, um, Europe's a break, leading one right to nil, or trailing one right to nil, or, or whatever. 
the Americans will come on and they basically almost take five minutes to like introduce it, you know. It's such and such a frame and such and such is going to break and the match is da-da-da-da-da and just gives, as far as I'm concerned, way too much information, but that's the way they are. Yeah. You know, we're short and concise because we are actually, we're not the big stars, so it's supposed to be short and concise, yeah. but they, they, they don't get that. They, they're the so Absolutely. Yeah, very, very much so, yeah. And when you started to do your first bit of reffing, were you still playing at that time then, Michaela, or had you stopped playing and then moved into reffing? Or? Yeah, no, when I started, um, believe it or not, I did my first American nine ball tournament, like, well, I wasn't a professional then, but my first televised American tournament, um, and I'd only just had Morgan, and that was 1997. Um, so I never won my Europeans till 98 and then the okay, UK in 99. So um, it kind of, it was during, um, and when I stopped playing was pretty much after I'd started with World Snooker because I was spending a lot more time away. And that's when I was I'd sort of going towards 100 days a year, um, like a week away at a competition of time instead of, you know, three or four days. And the last thing I felt like doing when I travelled back on a Monday, if we'd finished on the Sunday, was then going to Tuesday night league pool. Yeah. So that's when I, I gave it up. I was just finding it it had got a bit too much. I, and obviously my, um, you know, I was changing kind of what were my priorities at, at that point as well. And the thing is, if you've just come home, I, I mean, Morgan was young when I started. If you've just come home from working away, they don't want you to go out, you know, the next night. Um, so you've got family demands on you as well try and keep a, a sort of balance with work and life and, and all the rest of it. How did you how did you, did you get into the American pool to referee and where did they pick you up? Where did you start doing that? That, that was my husband um, because there was an, uh, a matchroom ran a, an American pool event in Glasgow. It was a one-day event called the St Andrews Cup. It was in the old, oh gosh, I think it was the old Hilton. There was a, it was an under... It was a, like a minus one level where they used to do boxing events in the St. Andrews suite. I can't yeah. remember the name of it. It's a holiday. I can't remember. It's not there anymore. Um, and they brought up a ref from England because there wasn't any Scottish refs. And he played in it a few times. And when we got together, he said, you could do that. Uh, and I was like, well, you know, I don't know American pool and whatnot. He went, you could do that. You could easily learn the rules for that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest to the organiser that we have an American ref now in Scotland. So we did, which was a lot of crap. And he suggested that um, we had this ref, and she said, "I'll oh, get her to send a CV down and a photo." So I sent a photo down and made a CV up of these nine ball events that I'd refed for Scottish <laughs> American Pool Players Association, and got the job. And that's where it all started. And the funny thing was, it wasn't funny at the time, by the way, but the funny thing was, I've googled American nine ball rules. Now, if you do that, you get a three-page A4 two and a half pages of rules. I'm like, this is easy. So, you know, you're basically learning. There's hardly anything there. It was like, that's not a problem. Did that, refed a couple games in practice to, you know, get the idea of what I was doing. What I didn't know was there's American nine ball, there's American 10 ball, there's seven ball, there's American eight ball, there's straight pool. There's, there's all these versions of games which are sub rules to the general set of billiard rules which is this thing. <laughs> and I didn't get that. So when we were actually at that event, um, there was uh, we had Jimmy White playing um, Rob from Wales and they were lagging. So the lags when they they both cue the, the cue ball up yeah. and down the cushion and the one cleared us. 
to the bottom cushion and wins the lag. And Jimmy White's miss hit and his cue ball kind of came back about half the table, but Rob's went in the pocket. And I'm, I haven't got a clue. I'm like, I have no idea because this was actually in the general set of billiard rules. And thank God for me, my husband was standing over at the side and then pointed to, to Jimmy or Rob, I can't remember, um, vice versa. And, and I got away with it because the reality was I didn't know the rules. I thought I knew the rules, but there was a lot of other rules that I had no idea about. So that was the first event. And I, I got managed to get through that, um, which was amazing because right after that, or not long after that, I got a phone call and asked if I would do the Moscone Cup that year. But we'd already booked a holiday um, to go to I don't know, Lanzarote or something with uh, my young son. So I couldn't do it because we were already going away. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's my opportunity gone. You know, I've lost it. I won't hear from him again. But she called me back next year for the Masters in London. Um, did I do 98? And the Moscone Cup that year as well. So that was kind of the start of my refing career then after sort of done the first event. And then was went, well, continued after that for 17 years. Who, who was the guy in the, your first Moscone Cup? Because they used to pull in Davis and Ronnie O'Sullivan. There was always a couple of big names thrown in. Who was in your first? Do you remember? Um, I, I had, in the very first, I had Steve Davis and um, Earl, Earl the Pearl Strickland, which is enough on its own, as you can imagine. <laughs> we've, got, and, we've got a question about that as well. Uh, <laughs> and also we had a young guy called Fabio Petroni, who plays uh, for Italy. Um, and the, the big thing in that event was um, Fabio had been on Valium and one of his English friends who we'd got to know has said, oh, you, you shouldn't be taking that. You need to stop that. And he's just stopped, obviously without doctor's orders and no, um, you know, not, not even weaning himself. He didn't know any different. He just stopped. Well, he kept breaking down. He kept breaking down in the middle of the event. He kept crying and he couldn't control himself. And he's partner in Steve Davis. And I'm absolutely crapping myself because I have got, I'm at the first, I'm, I'm already in pieces. I'm on live TV for the first time in my entire career or, you know, and, and this guy's having a flaky and I've got Steve Davis and I've got Earl Strickland. I, I mean, it was like, it was like four days that I don't think I ate or slept. I think I just drank and smoked at that time because you were just, it was just like, ooh, it was unbelievable. But it gets easier the more you have these people, but that was the first one. The good thing for me was um, I was co-repping that event with Jan Verhatz, and he's obviously very experienced in these kind of situations and similar players from snooker. So he was able to kind of, he, he kind of led the way and he controlled them and, um, and, and, and you know, kind of, took over from that respect which oh thank god he did because i was completely out of my depth with these three you know even separately never mind um kind of together but oh, it was some experience i tell you some experience now you've probably had a lot of experiences of errol the peril is he as mental as it as he comes across he's, he's hilarious i love him to bits he's absolutely hilarious he, um, he can change his opinion on something um, like the wind. Um, I remember we were in, um, oh gosh, I can't remember where we were, but we were abroad. At, uh, I think it was the Philippines, actually. And we we were getting a bus from the hotel to the venue. And we're, there's like eight of us that are in the minibus on this morning. And he's holding court um, and explaining why 
It should always be winner breaks, for instance. In American pool, they either do winner break or alternate break. And he's standing, arguing the point for winner breaks. The very next morning, I'm in the, in the thing, and that there was different players, because it depended who played on what time, with Earl. And he's arguing the toss about why it should always be alternate breaks. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, this, this guy is unbelievable, you know. He, he kept us on his toes because he um, he would always find something new to do or, or try. He, he liked to try and push the boundaries all the time. So you kind of had to get um, used to where our line was. Um, yeah. And at the point where I realized where our line of what was acceptable was okay, I had my hand, I, you know, I had a handle on him then because he was always allowed to go so far because that's what TV wanted. They wanted yeah. the drama. Yeah. But it was disrespectful sometimes. So, you know, we would get a kind of, you would, you would sort of, you would warn him, you were going to warn him, you know, have a word, Earl, come on, you know, pull him in a few times. And then as soon as you gave him that official warning, right, if you do it again, next time it's a foul, quiet as a mouse. You would, you would never, never do anything then because he, he won't foul. He just liked to see, you know, what he could do and how far he could push until. So I, and the thing is, an in, inexperienced in ref, he'd have them all day long because yeah. he knew he could do that. He knew he yeah. could get away with it. And it was only um, like Nigel and Reese and myself pretty much who learned how to deal with it that he, he, he realised there was a line. And when he got to that line, then he knew he just had to back down and, and be quiet, especially if it was a team event because it's his team that would be disadvantaged. Aye. If it was Moscone, for instance. Because he's always chuntering away in the background, isn't he? Yeah. That's one of his biggest tactics, just chuntering away between shots, even when yeah. the other person's playing. I know, which, and they're not supposed to. You know, we have had to tell him, obviously, off a few times about that as well. Um, but as, if, if he can get away with it, he'll do it. For, yeah. So for as long as he can get away with it, he'll do it. What's the, I don't, don't want to say the worst thing, but the, the, the how, how far he's tried to push it with you personally as, as a ref that you've had to sort of rein him in? There was two big incidents that I've had in, in my time. Um, one, he was actually playing Steve Davis on the TV table at the World Pool Championships in Cardiff. And it was when you play it back afterwards, because obviously it ended up being a big issue, as it always is if it goes on on live TV, uh, he started arguing with somebody in the crowd. And um, Steve's got up and he's, he's about to break. And I've gone, Earl, you need to be quiet. Steve's on a shot. And Steve's got down again, and he's carried on. Um, and, uh, and then he started on me. So Steve's turned around and gone, excuse me, um, can I go to the bathroom? Uh, and I went, absolutely. And then I, I've turned around and gone, Earl, don't you ever talk to me like that. And he's starting on me, and he's in the, you know, somebody in the audience, he's yeah. giving me jit and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Earl, you do not, when you're player, your opponent's at the table, and you do not start on me. Um, I'm doing it, and I'm actually covering my mic as if, I don't know. I thought they might not hear. You know, everything. I, know, I, I actually oh. seen this on YouTube. It's actually quite cool. Yeah. I, but see, we went in the, the truck afterwards, you know, in the production truck. And, and they, they replayed it. And what Earl didn't know is they've got microphones behind the player's seats to give a bit of ambience, uh, you know, and, and pick up a bit of the kind of audience reaction. And they turned the volume right up. And there was nobody. There was no comment from anybody. He literally started arguing with himself, which then created some reaction from somebody in the audience to then, you know, almost mastermind this whole scene. And then the next day, he's, I've got him, um, 
it was, it was either the first match I refed, but it was his match anyway, and he was back on the TV table. And he's actually walked on live TV with a bunch of flowers to apologise. Because <laughs> I was standing, you know, as he's walked out on Facebook, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, you've, you've got to love the guy. He, he's, uh, he kind, he kind of knows what he's doing. <laughs> he's a one-off, certainly. I know. What, what was more nerve-wracking for you then in those days, playing or refereeing? Refereeing. Um, oh yeah, yeah, every day of the week because it's it's almost an unknown sometimes. And with refereeing, you don't want to make a mistake. It's a hard role because you're always expected to make the right calls and you're always expected to be in the right place and see the right things. So if you don't, or if you make a bad call, because you've got to remember, we make a judgment on a split second uh, vision. Um, it's not like the, uh, the whatever it is that the football's got, you know, and even the tennis now has kind of got all kinds of stuff. We never had that in those days. You had to make the decision and potentially stand by it or have an argument with the player. Um, so you were always expected to be the good guy and then you got flapped if you weren't, you know what I mean? You, you never got any thanks or praise for it, literally. So it was it was harder, but the more experienced you got and learned how to handle things and to be in the right place and whatnot, it, it got easier. Um, and then it was funny because I, I'd got to the point where I was in control of nine ball and I was completely comfortable with it. And then I started to snicker. So that was all... A, a new thing again and, and new rules and new experiences. And I was like right back to almost, you know, stage one. The only thing that I had when I joined World Sticker that a lot of other refs didn't have is I had live TV experience, which is is huge. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of people could just fall to pieces in front of live TV, but I wasn't up on the rules because I hadn't done years and years of apprenticeship with the game, which a lot of those refs in those days did. So it was, uh, it, it was, it was back to back to the, sort of the starting board with snooker and went through a couple of years of the nerve wracking, gaining experience kind of thing again. As how I was always so skinny in the days because you looked <laughs> up and nerves. <laughs> but again, you you didn't have to apply for that. You were approached for the snooker again, weren't you? Yeah, they they actually gave me a contract. Um, what happened in those days was there was an association called the Referees Association that used to supply all the referees two world sticker for all the, the uh, TV stages. In fact, I think they probably supplied them for all of the stages. And but World Snicker were trying to shake the game up. Um, and they needed they wanted some younger refs, they wanted some, well, they wanted female, they wanted diversity. And they weren't getting it from the Professional Referees Association because they were kind of looking on it like a job for the old boys. Yeah. You had to ref for four years before you could join the association. And then you needed to be a grade one for two uh, before you could be put forward for this or whatever. It was never encouraging um, new blood or youngsters. It was almost like an association of ex-policemen and ex-security people um, who felt that they basically could, you know, um, retire and have a, have a job till they were, you know, yeah. however old. So World Snooker took it upon themselves and they actually gave contracts out. And you can imagine how that went down when that came out. I was actually at the meeting because um, I was going to my first event to ref and I didn't realise that I went, I was then part of the meeting where it was kind of announced who had the contracts and who didn't. And it was the dawning of them realising what was going on. And I mean, there's a couple of refs in that meeting never spoke to me for the whole week. They didn't know me. They didn't know anything about me. They just obviously seen, I've kind of walked in the door and, and been given a contract and, and they didn't. And so just, yeah, it, was, yeah, it wasn't the, 
most friendly some starts. <laughs> uh, did some of them get cut as well? Or half of the people at that meeting didn't get contacts. Yeah. Oh. Um, and the, there were so many that weren't there because there was a televised event on at the time. So the top refs that weren't there, they you know, they had contacts, but it was it, it was very lonely. Um though that first tournament was very lonely because you know I was the outsider and obviously there was a lot of jealousy. I, I got an employment contract. It wasn't just a, you know, for a couple of tournaments or whatever. I actually had an employment contract. These people have been doing it for years and and had nothing. How much you mentioned about the rules at pool and you know you just downloaded that little two and a half page thing. Obviously, snooker rules are massive as well. Yeah. You're learning from what happened in the pool though. How much studying did you have to do? Because you need to know those rules inside out on the yeah, do, do you know what I learned with the with the snooker rules is you can think you know them, but it's not until situations actually arise on the table that you realise how to implement them or how to address them or which rule takes precedent over which other rule. And I did a lot of learning on the job um, and I was very, very lucky because when you consider after one year and they started me then reffing uh, some of the qualifying for the main tour, the, the professionals, my first year was on like a division beneath that kind of. It was a, like a challenge tour. It wasn't the, the main tour. Um, and it, I was gaining my experience on the job. Um, and, and I'll never forget, I learned um, two things on kind of um, main TV, if you like, or not main TV, but, but or, you know, on the job. And one of them was on TV. Um, the first one was I, uh, I had to check a free ball and I checked it and deemed it as... Um, not being one, I think, or I can't remember, vice versa, anyway. And the player asked for a second opinion. So I've had to get the head of referees, and he's come along, and he's given an opinion, and he, it's not what I had said. So I'm in pieces now, because I've got Ken Doherty and James Watana. You know, I've not even just got two nobodies. I, I've got two decent players. And they, um, they, they have now seen that my decisions overturned. So... At the, at the interval, at, at, uh, after four frames, I've gone back in and I, I'm in pieces. And one of the refs has come in, um, Irene, who was a senior ref, and he's like, what's wrong? And I've explained and I went, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. I couldn't do it. I couldn't see it. Um, and, and, or I thought I'd seen it. And he went, oh, there's a trick for that. This is what you need to do. And bless his heart, he's got some balls out. We've got like a kitchen counter because um, we're in a dressing room in the back of the, the CIA in, in Cardiff, and he's trying to make balls sit still, which, of course, all they want to do is roll all over the place. But he's trying to show me that if you take a ball, up, for instance, a potted ball, you, so if your cue ball's here and the ball in question that you think the obstruction is there, you set a ball next to that and then set a ball on the inside of the object ball to get a line. But, of course, nobody, these, they don't teach you these things in the rules. They tell you the meaning of the rule, but there's other things you need to learn to know how to implement them. And it, it was after that, it was, it was still a hard decision sometimes with them, but at least having that little bit of knowledge on how to help create a line, it gives you the best chance of making a decision. But as I say, it doesn't tell you in the rules how to do that. Almost needs a book that goes with the rules with examples <laughs> of how to, you know, how to do things yeah, sort of yeah. thing. Now, I know you were a, a snooker fan when you were young, but when you were on the snooker tour, were you a bit starstruck when you first went out? Oh, I was, uh, I had so many people that were, were like um, my, my heroes, you know, because obviously I'd watched it for years. 
Uh, and it, it's funny because um, one of, or there's a few of the refs are like, oh, I, I love ref and Stephen Hendry. I'm like, I hate it. And they were, why? And he was like, because he was the guy. I said, I just feel under so much pressure. Like, I'm, if I call a foul on the miss, I'm telling Stephen Hendry he's not played a good enough shot, you know? <laughs> Lonely me kind of thing. I, always, I was always under pressure with Stephen. I, I, he had that aura about him as well. He wasn't approachable, but that's, he had a job to do. You know, he's, he's a lovely guy off the table, and I've learned that since. But nobody socialised in those days because yeah. they had a job to do. So they kind of did their job and and then went back to the hotel room or, or went home if they'd left. So we didn't kind of have that. Um, you know, those relationships in those days. Um, and, the, and the other thing I used to do was I basically almost was checking off every professional player that, to me of, you know, a, a name, if you like. So um, your, well, obviously your Ronnie and your Alan McManuses and, you know, all, all the players that were names in, in my kind of days. Um, and one of the last that I got to was uh, Jimmy White. And hugely, you know, a starstruck when I first met him. But it was the pressure. It was almost like the pressure of reffing them all for the first time. Because after the first time, to them, I'm just a ref. But that first time is, you know, I'm under pressure. And do you know, up until the point, literally, that I reffed everybody, I I never wore perfume. Because I didn't want to walk into a match and change the way they expected it to feel. So I wouldn't put perfume on. I obviously made sure I had deodorant on, whatever, but I couldn't put <laughs> perfume on because I didn't want to um, disturb their working arena, yeah. which is, it seems like a daft thing, but that's how much it meant to me. I, I just wanted to be accepted and, you know, and normal. And see the, so the rep, the match that I got with um, uh, Jimmy was against um, Peter Ebden in the semi-finals of the Scottish Players' Championships. And that was, I can't remember what year it was, but it was the, he actually won it and he got to the final. And in the final, it was against um, Paul Hunter. And that was Paul Hunter's last final before he passed away. But that was Jimmy's last final that he won at that point, I think, in the main tour. You see, coming up in the build-up to the semi-final, I was like, you can't do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. Phone in six. Come up with some excuse and no, don't be so silly. You need to do it. I can't do it. And I was like, I, I was an absolute flipping loony. And it got to the morning of the match and it was like a calm had descended. And it was like, you've got this. But I'd been through like three days because I knew that if that player won and that player won, I was getting, because you know in advance what matches you're getting, you see, so you can kind of work out. Um, I was in bits, absolute bits, but I did it. Uh, and he won, and then he went on and won the final after that. Did you ever have any encounters with the hurricane? I know it was a different career to path, but yeah, yeah, I did actually. Um, I refed him twice, not in main uh, main tour. Um, and when I was doing that, um, or when I knew I was doing that, I was actually I uh, was petrified because um, one of my fellow colleagues, who's a, a female ref who came through, and um, Trish Murphy, she. I'd ref an exhibition with them and she had heels on and I always wear heels. I'm, I'm a lady. I, I, I don't feel comfortable walking around in flat shoes. So, um, but the venue that she was doing the exhibition with them in hadn't put carpet around the table. They just stuck it on a wooden stage. So she's clomping about and he just, he, he started on her and, and was swearing at her and everything. And I was like, 
he was my hero and I've worked so hard to be respected in the game. I can't allow him to treat me like that. Um, and so I, you know, I was a bit wound up and it was a seniors event in, in Glenrothes actually. And I've, I've gone along and I hadn't met him before. Um, so I've, I've walked into the room, he's in the, the player's lounge and he's gone, oh, Michaela. And he went, so lovely to meet you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> he actually knows who I am, you know? And he shook my hand and he said, um, uh, I said, I'm your, your referee for today's match, Alex. And he went, oh, lovely. He went, right. He said, what I'd like you to do is stand four foot behind me on the left-hand shoulder at all times. And I'm like, I mean, this was really, you know, this was at the very, very end of his life almost. Uh, and I, I could do nothing but laugh because he, I mean, he could hardly put two shots together, but I, I was still being given the direction that I was to be four foot behind him. And, and bless him, he only ever potted two balls at a time. So he lost the match and I, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't in any trouble, but um, yeah, it was, it was massive uh, actually doing that for the first time. And then as, as, as far as I know, his last match, his last proper match that he played before he passed away, was against Cliff Thorburn in the Crucible. Yeah. It was at the um, the Legends event that they staged yeah. um, there. And the two of them came face-to-face -face in the Crucible for the first time and in the Crucible together as well. Um, since they'd met, it was a 1918 final or something? Yeah. 1918. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was quite, um, it was quite emotional for sort of everybody. And then he'd just come out of hospital with his pneumonia at that point. So it really was, you know, the end of his, his life. But it was lovely memories for me to have because he was my hero as he was millions of others. And I just didn't want him to crap all over that, you know. Yeah. Um, and he did it. He did it. What would it be like? You've obviously ref, you know, all, all the all the major tournaments. But that, that first time walking down the Crucible stairs, what's that like for you? Terrifying. <laughs> just think with the heels and everything, you'd be worried about. Oh God, am I going to trip up? And that is that is actually the worry. That every time I go downstairs, that was that worry. Um, because you kind of they opened the curtains in those days. They had this somebody standing behind it pulling the string, and you walked out and you kind of um, you you acknowledge the crowd who were all up at that level, and so you're you've either then got to go like that and to watch where you're going, which to be fair, I kind of needed to, or you're potentially going to trip. Um, because obviously I always wear heels. That part of that walkout is terrifying. But that first time that I was introduced to the Crucible was unbelievable. Um, the Alan Hughes in those days was the BMC, and he introduced me first as the ref. I think because it was it was obviously a historic moment and a, a female ref in the Crucible. And he so he, he started it off by. He's making history, or we're making history today. She, one, I can't even remember the exact words. And all I could hear was this buzz because people don't know who the refs are in advance. But then the whole crucible realized that that was the day, effectively, that I was coming out um, to make history. And oh, I, do you know what? The hairs are standing up on the back of my neck now. The feeling of walking out that day, if, if you could bottle that up, you could sell that, you know, and, and make a fortune. It was. It was unbelievable. Such a magical, magical moment that will stay with me forever. So, and then following on from that, my second final, the final I wrecked against Ronnie O'Sullivan and Ali Carter in 2012, I fell down the stairs. 
<laughs> I tried to do a week in a rundown and do it quickly and, and tripped on the bottom. I never fell on my backside or anything, but I, I did trip on the bottom of the stair as I was coming out. I was like, God's sake. <laughs> now, now, I know you have to concentrate on snooker as a ref, obviously, but see when you're watching like 147s and stuff like that or amazing clearances, do you get a bit carried away and then like forget that you're refereeing sometimes? You sometimes forget they're on one. Um, I've, I've done that before. I remember, um, in fact, I've had two specific games. Um, one one of the players got to 80, um, and I'm thinking, he's done, he's done quite well. There's still a few reds left. And then it's dawned on me that he's on for a one for seven. Because you don't necessarily... Do you know what, especially if at the beginning um, there's been a follow uh, and so there's points already on the scoreboard. So the score is not sitting as you would detect, you know, if it was from nil-nil. And the second one was exactly that. So Ryan Day is, is now on 100 and, 105. What does it go to? 100 and, 112. 112, right? He's on 112. And he's asked me to clean the cue ball. And I'm like, what, what, what for? You've won the frame. <laughs> and then it's dawned on me that when he's got to the 120, because there was four points already on the scoreboard, he was actually on a maximum. I had no idea. No idea. Um, so you know, sometimes you know straight from the off, and other times you're you're just you're watching them pop the balls and you've, you've not realised that they've started with a red black and they've carried on. Is it... Is it a tiring job? Because there must be a lot of concentration involved in that. It must be quite, a, I imagine it's a tiring job anyway, but is it? It's, yeah, very, very much so. And for me, I felt especially because I was trying so hard. I felt as if I was um, trying harder than anybody else because everybody else was guys and I didn't want to make a mistake. So the level of concentration that I put into every game was, was really, you know, really overpowering. Um, I would even, I would never rest on my laurels when balls were moving off the spots. I'd kind of been taught at the, at the very beginning, if you feel like you're losing your concentration, go back to basics. Where's the green? It's on a spot. Where's the brown? It's on a spot. Where's the yellow? It's off its spot. Plot it. So if it, you know, if you have a foul and a miss, you've got to put the balls back. And that was kind of, because I did that, but all that stuff is all extra mental yeah. ability you're putting in, you know, mental focus. Because you probably never have to put a ball back for all you know. You, you know, if, yeah. if you don't, you put all your effort and time uh, or your energy into these kind of things. But it's because I wanted to be the best that I could be. So I was always, and it wasn't even physical, although, you know, the longer matches, obviously, can, especially when you start hitting the five, five and a half, six hours, you can really be, and I'm talking in one session, I'm not talking like split over two or three days or whatever. That's hard going, but mentally, you, it's absolutely exhausting really exhausting. I find that the hardest thing. Uh, and my wee thing before the match, religiously, um, I would have a can of Red Bull. And then I quite quickly <laughs> realised I needed to do sugar free. Probably not supposed to say that, am I? Is that, is that any right? No, so, no, I love, I love my Red Bull as well. Oh, right, right. It, and it became, it became a habit. And if I didn't have it, I wasn't prepared. And I started to panic because I hadn't had my, my can of juice. Uh, so it became a thing that I always had them. Um, they were in the fridge at a venue, always had them. Uh, and it was, whether I felt I needed it or not, I had to have it. It was all part of my match preparation. Um, it didn't feel as if I'd gone out, I was going out ready. It was like going out without your gloves. I hadn't had my, I'd had my can of juice, you know. 
on about uh, match stamina, did when you find out you've, you're playing somebody like um, Ebden or someone, do you roll your eyes? No, not so much, but you know you're in for the long haul. Yeah. So, there, I mean, there's times that there are some people, players who are obviously slower than others and that, you know, you're always going to think, all right, I'm, I'm going to be out there for a while. Um, and I, I never had a problem with that as long as the game's progressing. What I, I didn't like was those players that sometimes played negatively, um, but they weren't developing the game. They're just trying to shut something down. There's no value in that. And that did happen sometimes. Sometimes the way the balls went. Um, and, you know, I tell you, some frames you used to hate was when all the reds ended up on the bottom cushion and the black was in the middle of it. You, you just knew you were there for another 40 minutes to an hour on that one frame. And there's nothing you could do. You just had to accept that and hope the next one kind of didn't go the same way. Um, but I, I actually, because I'm a tactical player, I don't have a problem with tactical play because I find it interesting to follow. Um, the only time I have issues with it is if I'm exhausted because I'm not focusing, and then there are the games that are going to catch you out because you're, you know, you've, you've if you've wiped yourself out with another game or something, they're the games you need to be on. The ones where players are popping balls and doing breaks are easy. You're picking balls out of pockets and you're calling out scores. And if you forget the score, it's on a scoreboard in front of you. You don't have to remember it in your head. They're easy. It's the other games that are the harder ones that take kind of more out of you. Can you, you were obviously a big snooker fan growing up. Being a referee watching, can you actually in, enjoy watching then or is the concentration just too much that you're you're watching in a different way from that you would have as a fan? To me, completely different way. Um, I'm always looking at where they're going to go next so I can preempt what they're going to, I, I want to go and stand. Um, whether they're queuing over a ball, does that mean I need to be behind them on the re- left or the right to be able to see? And um, and then when they're hitting a ball, where the balls are going, not so much seeing how the game's developing. Um, and in fact, there was one semi-final match I had with Ronnie and uh, Stephen Hendry in the world. So I think it was the last time Stephen Hendry was in the semi-final, actually. He went into the session for all in the morning. This was a morning session. And they played the previous day and it was for all. Come into the morning session and played eight frames, Ronnie won all eight, and I've walked out, and all I've heard from everybody was, that was unbelievable. We've never seen a snooker like it. He did this break, that break, this break, that break. And I had no idea. <laughs> I literally had no idea. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it was, uh, oh, this is good. This is this is easy. I'm just picking balls. Like, this is, this is on a quick session. I had no idea that what he'd achieved in those eight frames was, um, I think, you know, relatively historic the numbers that he'd clocked up versus Henry kind of thing. Because that, you don't you don't see it. You're not looking at that. You're looking at, especially with Ronnie, you're, you've got to be fast on your next shot. So you don't have a lot of time to kind of hang yeah. around and, and enjoy watching him. You're more running around. <laughs> what What is the most memorable game you've you've refed at the Crucible? What would you think? Um, like for quality of snooker and everything. Well, do you know, that's my problem, though. I can't remember because I don't really pay attention to the the quality as much. Yeah. Um, what, um, one of them that stood out for me was um, it was a semi-final against uh, Mark Selby and Sean Murphy. Sean had gone up to the 16, I think, or 17, whatever it was that where you were one away uh, from, you know, winning. 
And Mark was a few behind. And Mark's always had a you know a huge, huge support. He's he's very much loved by the fans. And um I I'm being honest, right? You know, as if somebody said to me, Who do you want to win? The first one to get to the end works for me. I I don't get paid per hour. I don't get paid to stand out there for an hour or five, right? That that's my I'm not in it for the let's get to 12-12 or 18-18 or whatever. Yeah. I really don't care. Um, but when you do end up at the business end like that, I'm thinking one more frame, one more frame, and am I, you know, that's it, one more frame. Mark won another one, right? One more frame. Sean wins one more frame. And Mark won another one. Meanwhile, the audience is is getting into a frenzy. And Mark's brought it back to the Hill Hill, you know, or, or whatever, I can't, 15, 15, 16, 16, or whatever. Then, of course, you don't give a hoot, but the atmosphere in that place was electric. It was yeah. unbelievable. And that's one of my most memorable matches because it was it was constant. Every shot he played there, you know, they're, they're um, cheering and, and whatnot. And, and he won it. It was, from that point of view, it was amazing. But... As a maybe not as a whole match, but walking out to the audience like the first time I walked out, it was um, an even more surreal moment walking out from a first final because it was the same kind of thing. It was introduced that she's making history, and um, anybody that at that point hadn't realized I was doing the final obviously did then. Um, and the cheer and support and everything that I got when I walked out was unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. And so those are kind of the special moments, you know, not necessarily the full match. <laughs> <laughs> see, at the time, did, did you see yourself as a, I don't know whether we say pioneer or trailblazer, whichever word you want to use, but for, for women's snooker, because obviously there's a lot of female refs on the circuit now, but you were the, you know, the, the, the first main one. So uh -huh. did, at the time, second, that's my, that's my alarm to tell me the bin needs to put out. I'll just turn that off. <laughs> Unbelievable! Mine just went as well. You're joking. Exactly. Put my bin out. Uh, great, I have great to, minds, eh? You great forget, minds. and then Sympathical. then you wake up on a Thursday and you go, "Oh shit! I forgot to put the bin out." Uh, right, where were we? Oh, I yeah, you were taking okay. the bins out and then becoming a trailblazer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not necessarily in that order. Um, yeah, um, not really. I, I hadn't really appreciated. Uh, to begin with, because I didn't, there, there had been other reps, uh, other lady reps before me, but none on the professional circuit. So when I started on the professional circuit, I, I realised I was obviously making um, a little bit of waves because it was getting a bit of a reaction and the TV was interested and, and whatnot. And that kind of put me under more pressure because I'm then being put in the spotlight. And as a rep, you don't really want to be in the spotlight because if you then make a mistake, you're more recognisable as who that person was. And of course, it was easy with me because I was the only one. So if the female had made a mistake, then that was that was me. But as time went on, I got I actually got let go at the end of my second year with World Snooker. There was a, an organisation running the game at that point that decided they were cutting staff and did a, um, like a, I don't know. It was a last in, it. first out thing, wasn't it? Well, that's what yeah. they did. I they didn't take any consideration of any like my youth or and and the fact that I was female and I was younger and and it was it was all the older ones that got to stay or all the, the more experienced. And I was so upset and frustrated because I had absolutely worked my backside off for two years to be let go like that. And uh, you know, I, I, it was almost like cryable because. There was nothing that I could change and I couldn't understand why 
it had built up that way. And then all of a sudden they were basically saying, right, no, um, thanks very much. Um, we don't need you anymore. So not long after that, that was the end of the, um, that season, to, to one, to, to end of 2003. So then I go to the World Championships, the American Nineball in Cardiff and Steve Davis there. Um, and actually, I got the phone call when I was there to say that, unfortunately, my scores, when they'd done this thing, weren't high enough. Because, of course, they'd high, the scores were relating to length of service and experience and grades and things. You know, I didn't have any of that. And I've gone back at the office and, I, and, and Steve Davis was in there um, and I've gone... Oh, well, that's that's me. I've been, um, I've just had to call to say I'm being let go. And he, he went, you are joking. Uh, and I went, no. And he went, that won't last. I went, well, they've done this whole thing, you know, and I didn't, so he went, that won't last. He said, I, I put money on it even now, that won't last, let me tell you. And then unbeknown to me later on after that, a couple of months later, the uh, director of Sky, because we were on Snookers on Sky TV at that point, and the director of the BBC had both been on to World Snooker and gone, what the hell are you doing? That was the best thing you did, bringing in a younger and a female for the game in years, and you've let her go. Um, and they came back and basically said, we want you to come back, we want to reinstate you, uh, continued service, you know, not no breaking service, la, la, la. And I was like, well, I've missed so much of, because I think it was in September. I said, I've missed so many days already. I, I can't I can't possibly do the number of contracted days left in the time. Uh, and I was basically told, yeah, you tell us what you can do. They will, they will accept it. And at that point, I realized my value. And that's when I suddenly started to appreciate what I was doing. Hadn't really cottoned on to it up until that point. And then I was... I was like, now, now I get it. And now you get it. So let's work, not you, I mean, world snooker, you know what I mean? Um, let's, let's go from here. And do you know what that did? That was the day I felt confident in my own ability. I was still working like an absolute dog, at, you know, putting so much into it. And at that point, I realized I was a good ref and I was accepted um, and I was part of the team. Because they sacked me. <laughs> well, no, I did sack me, did they? They... Make me redundant, I suppose, yeah. or let me go. Yeah. Now, the second, you know, a few years later, the second time you left the tour, we, we can't go into, but do you miss it? I, I do. To a certain extent, um, it's it's taken a long time to get used to the fact that I'm not part of that anymore. Um, and, but I also, six, I miss the nine ball. Is it six years now, seven years you've been six, away from snooker? 2014 was the last yeah. um, professional match that I did. So it's, yeah, it's hard to watch it from the other side after spending so many years behind the player and, you know, sitting watching it from the, the couch, if you like. And that, that's been quite difficult to do. But I, I always think things are, you know, meant and happen for a reason. Um, and I've carried on reffing in respect of um, exhibitions, snooker legends, and I still do the World Seniors. So the World Seniors has actually got, uh, it was got, it's got Stephen Hendry, and um, well, probably not now. Is it still got him now? Because he's back on the main trip. It's got Jimmy White, Ken Doherty, um, and we've had Tony Knowles, Cliff Thorburn. We had Alex, um, uh, Mount, uh, uh, Doug Mountjoy. We had Alex Higgins. So it was actually, um, it's still nice because I'm still involved with legends of the game. Mm. Although they're a little bit slower and a little bit older now, It's that's still been nice. 
And then the other side of that is I'm still I'm signed with Predator, uh, Predator Cues or the Predator Group, if you like, as their senior referee for it was a new um, American Ten Ball tour that was supposed to start last year, and it was going to be a world tour. And then the pandemic happened, so obviously it's all had to be postponed for the time being. But I'm I'm still involved with that, and and that's my that's my dream, that's that's my baby. Amer- American Pool has always been my my heart and my passion. To be fair. So I'm still, I'm delighted I'm still involved with that, which is, I can't wait to be able to get out and start travelling again. I just, I just watched you, well, you were refereeing the famous Chris Melling clearance. You've got, oh, yeah. that, that clip's got about 10 million views now or something. What did you uh, think when that happened? I, uh, so the first shot he did, because he played across cushion, didn't he, and come uh, back to pick a ball. I was like, you know, you're, you've always got the quite stoic, obviously, you know, uh, poker face kind of, and I'm like, that was a bloody good shot. <laughs> and then um, he's done another one, and I'm like, he's on a, he's on a roll today. And then, because I've ref Chris many times, and I know the way he kind of works when he's doing it, and I can see him pointing round, and I'm like, he is not going to take this for orange. <laughs> there is no way he is going. And he did it. I was like, oh, my God. It was unbelievable. And he does it all so fast as well. Yeah. Unbelievable! Very, very, very talented young man. Um, I, I love refing him because he's always busy. He's always on the go. Uh, but that was unbelievable. That clearance. It's definitely. It must be the best clearance ever. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I would. I, but it's just the way he's going like that, yeah. and I'm going. He is not. I, mean, I, I know because I've seen him do it. I know it is. I'm like, he is not going to do that. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. See how when in the pool that you're talking about errors, you know can be a little bit difficult. Who is the most awkward to ref in the, in the snooker world, Michaela? Ronnie. Um, yeah, we, we figured you'd say that. Yeah, I, to be fair, they're very, very similar characters. Very, you know, they're, they're both very emotional um, people. And before Ronnie had Steve Peters working with him to help, you know, uh, help him sort of mentally, yeah. um, he could, you could have different Ronnies that would come out for the game. I mean, you've seen all his antics in, yeah. in the years gone by, but you could also get one Ronnie that started the game and another one would appear halfway through. He, he could really switch his personality. And so that is a challenge. But you couple with that, with the fact that the guy can play left and right-handed, what you generally do, if you know your player at the start of the match, you're like, right, you know, Mark Williams is left-handed, Ronnie's right-handed, or whatever, and you know where you're going to stand. Then all of a sudden, Ronnie decides to switch, and you're standing in one place thinking you're fine. Now he's queuing over a ball, and you're literally having to, you know, dive around the back of him to be able to see under his arm. You just can't settle with him because he's so bloody good. <laughs> he's a genius. He's an absolute genius. You wouldn't have been allowed to say this when you were when you were still ref, and I don't know whether you even want to say it now. Did you have a favourite? I I did, and I kind of I kind of still do, um, but it was more for almost other reasons outside of um, the, the snooker itself. So it was my, Tony Knowles. It's No, it's it's Steve Davis. I, yeah. I love Steve Davis. He has got an amazing personality. And um, we spent quite a lot of time doing exhibitions because um, when we were on the, the legend scene or, or if we had been asked to do private exhibitions, quite often we would I'd be reffing and he'd be playing. And there was a couple of times that um, I stayed at his house with his, his girlfriend at that time and they were kind enough um, you know, to, to give me some hospitality 
so I didn't have to then get a train onto the next place to, to get a, a taxi and then go on a travel in or whatever. And he was like, oh, we'll, we'll go back, we'll drive back together and, um, you know, you can come and get something to eat with us and, and stay the night and then we'll just drive on the next day. So we, we had a lovely relationship like that. And I, I love Rick and Steve. And it was funny because why did we not feel under pressure with him like I did with Henry? I, I don't know. I can't yeah. answer that. I, I don't know. Steve Davis has got an Arbroath connection as well. I think his brother married an Arbroath last. He used to live up here. He used, yeah. to, he used to live in Arbroath. Did he? And I know he lived up. Keith, I've seen him not that long ago, actually. I was at, um, where was I? I can't even remember. But I've seen him. Um, and he's, he's still doing his pool tables and his snooker tables and everything. I, lovely family. Really lovely family. And uh, what are you currently up to these days? Because you have a snooker table business, don't you? Pool table. Used to people saying that. Yeah. Um, so I started with eight ball pool and it's just so bizarre now that I've kind of come full circle back to eight ball pool again. Um, my husband decided a couple three years ago he wanted to launch his own table because he's multiple world champion and had a number of um, you know, he, he if he says something is good or bad, it, you can believe it because you know he's very, very knowledgeable. So we were like, well, you know, why not? And we got an investor on board. Ross went and had a meeting with an English pool table manufacturing company. And they agreed to make a table to our specification that was our brand of black hole tables and only we could sell. So that was that was the easy part, really. Uh, and then we had um, a few orders at the beginning. And it's quite funny because I was telling somebody yesterday about this. If you went back to, because I do the admin, Ross, is, Ross can talk, he's Scottish, he's from Glasgow, he can talk. They try and ask him, to, you know, go on a computer, or load up a spreadsheet or, you know, even an email in their days. So I basically had to kind of do the, the selling or the admin, not so much, you know, more the admin side. So I basically started all that up. Um, and, you know, we're two and a half years later now and we're doing you know touch wood I, I really have to be thankful and I would never you know shout about it but the pandemic's been amazing for pool table sales because so many people mm. want pool tables at home and we launched a diner last year and that takes so many boxes because it's a dining table and it's a pool table um and so we've I've been I've been doing like seven days a week for 15 months it's been non it's been unbelievable um it, it's a good business is, is doing well and and I've had to learn so many different things to do with export and shipping and accounting and um I, I'm I'm master of all trades now let me tell you. <laughs> that that dining room table I, I actually showed it to my wife as a dining table and she actually liked it. It's beautiful. As it's a dining table, I know. It's really cool. And then I then I showed her the next picture and went, no it's a pool table. She says, well we're not getting that then. <laughs> <laughs> She really I've liked got, it as a dining table. It's it's really, really worked for people because obviously with, with COVID, people have got a lack of space, but they've got money and they want to spend um, some money on their home. The guys want things like, you know, their, their pool table or whatever because they weren't being able to get in a pub for, what, 15 months or so, yeah. apart from a few months. Um, and I've had I've had a number of them, and I'll, I'll never forget one um, lady that came on, or her husband came on, Pete, and he was like, I'm allowed to get a table, Michaela. I'm allowed to get my dining table. I said, oh, that's great, Pete. And what are you going for? I'm going for the silver oak. I was like, oh, it's a beautiful table, Pete. You'll love it. It's, it's our most popular. And it is. The only thing is, Michelle's told me the only way I can get it is she gets her pink cloth. So 
she's gone for the fuchsia pink clock that's on this beautiful silver table. But you know what? It, the grey and the pink go beautifully together. It is lovely, but it, it's a story I tell because that's the reality. You know, it's her piece of furniture as well. So he gets his pro table, but she has to have her pink cloth because it goes with the room. <laughs> and you've even shipped you even shipped a handful of tables to Australia recently. That's yes, I, a handful. It was a forty foot container. <laughs> it was for their championships or something, wasn't it? Yeah, they had their um, their annual national championship. So they uh, they had the forty foot container went over. Um, and New Zealand's one of my biggest customers. I've got Malaysia, France is my biggest customer. Uh, I've got Spain, I've got the Gibraltar, I've got Sweden, I've sold to Italy, Norway, where else? Madagascar. Wow. Yeah, we've, um, I tell you, you, I could talk to you about shipping and all sorts all day long. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for another podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> Final proper snooker question from me. If you could change one rule in snooker, what would it be? The foul and the miss. Um, yeah. Actually, uh, can I have two? <laughs> yeah, yeah three. absolutely. You're, <laughs> you're Michaela Tab McKinnis, mum. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm managing director. Um, I too, the one of the biggest ones that was a bugbear of mine was the push shot, because the rule of the push shot is that the cue ball. The tip and the object ball mustn't come in contact at the same time. But if they're hitting the fine edge of the object ball, it's deemed as acceptable. And what's happened over the years is the players have taken a wee bit more and stolen a wee bit more, and they're getting thicker and thicker. And to me, these shots are push shots. So either enforce it correctly or get rid of it because it's, it's not worth the, the paper it's written on, to be yeah. honest. It's not being applied correctly. Um, but the other one is the file and the miss because it's, it's a very hard rule to implement. Um, and the player often not knows how difficult a potential shot is. We all know the ones where there's 15 reds on the table and he's trying to land on one. We get that. But when they're down to one or two balls and they're in a really difficult position, they're, they're tight behind a ball at the top, it's too easy for refs to call the miss. Yeah. Because... They've missed, so they can't be wrong. Uh, I just feel it would be fairer to potentially even. I know there was talk about you know only having a maximum of three, sure. three calls on it, and and then you couldn't call it after that. That almost seems a fairer way of doing it because if a ref is in doubt, and it's easy to be in doubt by the way, because some of these these kind of snookers that come up are not the kind of ones you would set up and practice and and try and learn the angles for. It's not that they don't happen very often. And it, it, it takes a very, very ballsy shout to not call the miss. The easy thing to do is call the miss. Yeah. Yes. Because you're not wrong when you call the miss, but you're standing up to scrutiny and the other player starting on you if you don't call it. So remove that kind of, because it's, it's one-sided towards calling it. Take that away. Just do a maximum of three. It's fair for everybody then. Um, and it doesn't come down to a good ref or a bad ref or an inexperienced ref. It comes down to... The rules. Yeah. You see guys coming off four cushions and missing it by a centimetre and it's a miss. I know. I just like, that's not intentional. It's when there's an easier way out or that they maybe don't want to take, that's the other when yes. you've got to implement it as well. If they could have come off one cushion, but they're going to knock it towards the bottom pocket and they don't want to do that. Correct. So that's, that's an easy miss. But there's times when they come off four when there isn't another way to get out. And, you know, it's... As I say, it is easier to call the miss, but I don't think 
I don't think it's consistent um, and I, I don't think it's necessarily fair. Um, so from that point of view, I think it would be better readdressing that with some sort of, you know, appendix or something to it. We're almost at the end here. We've got a little Q&A, quick fire question round. 27 points on offer. It's a clearance on the colour. So yellow question, green question, brown question, etc. Are you ready? The general knowledge, or is it related to my... Oh, it's my a bit of everything. It's related. Oh, it's like one then. An easy yellow one. Right. Favourite wine, red or white? White. And what type? Champagne. <laughs> ah, you're going nice. bubbles, going bubbles. We're up to the green question. We hear that your favourite movie is Dirty Dancing. Now, we have a joint friend who looks like Patrick Swayze. Who is it? Oh, Gordon. Yay! Yay! <laughs> that was his nickname. That's Gordon's nickname when Is he was it? younger. Swayze. Yeah. We'll send you a photo where he looks exactly like him. I've never met him. <laughs> <laughs> you have, you've actually met all of us. We used to play in the same bloody tour. Oh, God. Well, that was obviously years yeah, ago. Yeah, 100 right? years ago. But, you years know. ago. Um, brown question. And this one is really easy. Your favourite podcast. Don't get this wrong. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. It's got to be this one. It's something to do with wine. Right, blue for five points. When did your husband, Ross, win his first Scottish title? Oh, for God's sake. Ross! <laughs> <laughs> oh. 83. Oh, so close. 81. Oh, God, can't believe that. We're on to the pink. We'll, we'll give you that one. Your last fiver on a bet, who would you put it on, Ronnie or Steve Hendry? At their best. Hendry. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we think as well. Yeah. I'd, I'd pay to watch Ronnie, but I'd put my life on Hendry. Yeah, he was a machine. Now, the black ball question. This is a tricky one. When games run over at the Crucible, have you ever pulled anyone off at the Crucible? Yeah, absolutely. But it's not our call. So I can't, I can't lose that point. It's not the ref's call. It's the tournament director. And the tournament director comes out from behind the curtain and catches your eye and basically goes, and you know at the end of that frame, you have to pull them. It's not our, it's not our decision to make. And by the way, when that happens, you're like, yes. <laughs> but Kayla, you've been far too kind with your time. Um, this has been fantastic. Uh, you did well there. Not quite the maximum break, but you know what? You're our favourite. I know you've got some favourites <laughs> of yours, but you're ours. We'll give you it anyway. Uh, Thanks very much for, for coming on. All the best and have a great holiday when you go away to Cornwall. Thank you. Thank you. I will Thanks. do. Yeah, stay safe, guys. You've been listening to the Smokies and Wine podcast, sponsored by Clack and View Wealth Management, working with you today to plan for your tomorrow.